Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. Politicians who are enthusiastic about Brexit are always talking about the UK having great opportunities for trade after leaving the EU, being able to sign its own trade agreements. Those who oppose Brexit, however, and many who are on the fence, dismiss those potential opportunities, at least for the short term, and say that the loss of EU trade would more than outweigh any new benefits. So, who's right? In previous episodes of this series of podcasts and articles, we've explained the principles and the legal framework behind free trade agreements, and looked at some of the benefits and downsides of ones that have been negotiated in the past. In this final episode in the series, I'm going to talk about the reality of the opportunities for the UK to grow its trade and its economy through new free trade agreements struck as an independent country. But first, it's important to consider that 80% of the UK economy is made up by services. Only 20% is manufacturing and agriculture and other commodities. So free trade agreements don't, as a rule, bring any direct benefit to the services sector. Even if new trade agreements could increase total British exports by 10%, that's only a 2% benefit to the overall economy. So why don't trade agreements cover services? Well, generally it's because services don't have import duties like physical goods. And what the services sector cares about are regulations more than taxes. Regulations are necessary for manufactured and agricultural products too, of course. But for services, they're fundamental. It's easy to see why. Doctors and lawyers need to be qualified. Without regulations, they'd be quacks. Accountants and bankers need to be constrained to act professionally within the laws of the country. Without regulations, there'd be fraud. And so it goes on. Every country has its own regulations for every type of service. Some countries share similar or even identical standards for some sectors, but mostly they've got a number of key differences. And of course, the cynic would say that makes it very easy for countries to protect their services sectors. A British accountancy firm can't provide its services for a company in another country unless it uses staff who are qualified to meet that country's regulations. And quite possibly, unless it can deliver the services actually in the country itself, in which case it's no longer an exported service. Some free trade agreements do indeed include some service sectors, but there's never yet been a single one that solely and specifically covers services. That isn't to say that services aren't exported, around 40% of British exports are services. Most of those don't need trade agreements, but instead they rely on sales to countries with similar regulations. 
In the case of the UK, many Commonwealth countries have the same language and common or close legal systems, so they should be easier to do business with. Whilst the single biggest country for UK services exports is the USA though, the biggest export market for UK services as a whole is the European Union. The proportions for services imports are similar. The EU as a whole is the biggest, but the USA is the biggest single country. So you ask, what are all these services we keep talking about? Well, the largest sector, which accounts for about 30%, is what's usefully, or rather not usefully, termed other business services. That's professional and management consulting, research and development, various technical and business services. The second largest sector, and arguably the biggest single definition sector, is financial services. A large proportion of those exports go to the EU, using what's called passporting rights. And as we keep hearing, those are the services at the biggest risk because of Brexit. The third sector, one that's growing all the time, is travel. How does that figure as an export or an import? Well, if you go on holiday abroad, let's say to the USA, the money that you spend there is treated as an import to the UK. However, when an American comes and spends money in the UK, that's an export. It's the way the money moves. The UK's biggest import market for travel is Spain, simply because more Britons go on holiday there than anywhere else. In the case of professional and financial services, trade agreements can help exports and imports by including preferential elimination of regulations. In the case of travel, that can be increased by removing or easing visa restrictions. Which topic takes us on very well to a very relevant connection between services and commodities in new trade agreements? Developing countries, who have more qualified and trained professionals than domestic jobs for them, often seek to include people when negotiating free trade agreements with developed countries. So, for example, it's absolutely certain that India will make the relaxation of visa rules and immigration limits a precondition of any new free-to-trade agreement that they're prepared to sign up to with the UK. The UK hasn't actually had to negotiate its own trade deals now for nearly 50 years, and the only British experts are those who've worked on negotiating EU trade agreements. Shortage of skilled negotiators is just one of the problems. But with so many countries in the world, where should the UK start? Well, pretty obviously there are two angles. One, what does the UK produce that it could sell more of to other countries if trade barriers were eliminated? And two, what imports would benefit the UK economy if they were cheaper? There should be a few easy wins. Many smaller countries who already have trade agreements with the EU will be willing to sign new ones on the same terms with the UK. But larger countries though, are likely to want to grasp the opportunity to start from scratch, especially since the UK is starting from a position of relative weakness. Size matters. Large, rich countries are always going to be better markets than small, poor ones. But, especially since trade deals take so long to negotiate, it's worth looking to future demographic changes. Countries that are going to be big in the future. Countries with growing populations and 
developing economies are arguably more important than older developed countries where populations are declining. On that basis, Malaysia, Egypt and Nigeria could be viewed as more important than Japan, South Korea or Thailand. First though, everyone agrees that the UK needs to prioritise its existing major markets. The USA always gets mentioned, and indeed it's huge, and it's the biggest single market. But the EU market is much bigger still, and UK producers stand to lose out really badly, with a potentially massive hit to the economy if the country can't negotiate and keep terms similar to those that it already enjoys. Hopefully that will be possible and easy. Frankly, if it's not, one would have to get really worried about what can be agreed with other countries. Never mind what extreme Brexiteers say. However dismissive one may be of what experts claim and cynical about what they say, it really would be impossible to replace our trade with Europe with other countries. And we're in a relatively weak negotiating position. The balance of trade might be negative, but actually the UK has far more to lose from no deal than the EU does. The British government knew that too back in 2016. I found a research paper they commissioned setting out a negotiating strategy and specifically warning against triggering Article 50 so early and without a plan and an agreed transition strategy. As we know, the government ignored those warnings. Anyway, we are where we are. Let's get back to looking at other opportunities for free trade agreements that the UK will need to pursue. The first, and theoretically the easiest step, is to seek to roll over those agreements with all the 69 countries that the EU already has free trade agreements with on the same terms. That process has already started, and according to the Department of International Trade, as of the date of this recording, agreements have been signed with countries representing 63% of UK trade under EU agreements. The statistic might be misleading, as other reports say that there's actually less than half the actual value of exports and imports that have been agreed. Certainly there's no agreement yet with some important countries like Canada, Turkey and Japan. They're the ones that it's quite probable will want to negotiate from scratch rather than simply novate the same terms as they previously agreed with the EU. Looking elsewhere, another factor is physical distance between markets. Research by PricewaterhouseCooper and others has proved that distance does make a big difference. The further away, the more difficult trade becomes. Obviously, that's another reason why Europe has to be a priority. But equally, a country like Ghana could generate more exports than Cambodia, simply because of distance. Why? Well, historically it would have been because of shipping times and costs, and in the case of food and other agricultural products, product deterioration, perishing. Nowadays, that situation is changing. Technology such as 3D printing has evolved, products have a shorter lifespan, and those and other factors lead to a tendency to manufacture in or nearer to destination markets. Physical distance matters for services too, but there's less published evidence. 
Really, it's difficult to work across time zones, but companies that establish overseas bases to provide local sales and support, as I've regularly recommended here on Growth Through International Expansion podcasts and articles, can overcome those issues and also resolve some other regulatory issues by including an adequate proportion of local content. We mustn't forget language. Obviously, it's easier to work with other countries that have English as a business language. Again, studies are thin on the ground, so difficult to actually prove statistically. But as an example, outside the English language, it's easy to see that Spanish companies are more successful in selling both goods and services to Latin America than, say, British or German ones are. And one has to conclude that that's largely down to a shared language and culture. As we discussed in earlier episodes in this series, trade agreements are, by definition, give and take scenarios. Both countries have to make concessions. For the UK to get another country to agree to remove some of its barriers to trade, will require that the UK dismantles some of its own. In the case of manufactured goods, that means removing tariffs on imports, so they'll become cheaper, and possibly removing or liberalising some of the regulations that apply to them. That will mean that any domestic UK manufacturer of similar products will face new and stronger competition, whilst, at the same time, they get the opportunity of increasing exports of its own goods to the other country. Usually, while trade agreements are being negotiated, the media only reports opportunities and risks for the most visible goods, things like cars and consumer electronics. However, I predict that uh, in the future, the greatest impact will be felt by the smallest businesses. Any relaxation of regulations by the UK be unlikely to benefit UK manufacturers. They'd still have to meet the most demanding regulations of their other export markets. Of course, where we're hearing about the threats of reduced regulations comes with food. In this case, the form of American chlorinated chicken and hormone-fed beef. I'm sure that neither of those are ideal, but I've spent a lot of time in the USA, and I've definitely eaten both, and I'm still here to tell the tale. What I think may turn out to be a much bigger issue related to food in the case of a free trade agreement is that, by definition, subsidies are supposed to be eliminated. As I hope you'll remember, I covered that in episode one of this series. In truth, however, subsidies probably never are eliminated. For example, the European Union has struck lots of free trade agreements whilst continuing with the common agricultural policy. However, since the EU is and will remain the biggest single market in the world, it's always been negotiating from a position of great strength. And that's not going to be the case with the UK. Negotiating on its own, that is. So when it comes to negotiating with the USA, for example, it's perhaps inevitable that the country will have to cave in, at least a little, from pressure from the other side to remove subsidies. So, whilst one result of Brexit will be that the common agricultural policy will cease to apply in the UK, farmers will certainly be pressurising the government to match those subsidies, and indeed that's already been verbally nodded through by ministers. But when it comes to negotiating free trade agreements, 
there'll inevitably be less resistance from the UK to dropping agricultural subsidies, assuming that some new ones are introduced, than they would have been from the European Union. Indeed, the existence of the Common Agricultural Policy has been one of the main reasons why the EU and the USA have never concluded the trade agreement that they've been negotiating since 2013. That's the so-called TTIP, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. The US will be coming to negotiations with the UK on a new free trade deal from a position of strength on manufactured goods and services too. The refrain or mantra, America first, isn't new. It's not something that Trump invented. It's ingrained into the soul of every American. And that's not a criticism. I can't help but respect the attitude. So expect pressure not only to dismantle tariff barriers and cut corporate taxes, but also facilitate, make easier, what will be called FDI, foreign direct investment, but which will in reality be acquisition of more British companies by American ones. What will the British get in return? Well, we'll have to wait and see. But businesses do need to watch like hawks and be ready to grasp both the new opportunities and react fast to new risks to their businesses. A potential deal with the USA is so important and so frequently referred to that it's worth us spending a few minutes understanding why negotiations between the US and the European Union of the TTIP have failed so far. Trade negotiations are usually conducted in secret, but details that have leaked out have caused huge public concern across Europe. The worries we've heard most have been the fear of a flood of imports of fracked gas, chlorinated chicken, hormone-fed beef, genetically modified crops, and cosmetics made with chemicals that are banned in the EU. But beyond that, less debated, there have been threats to public services, and demands for extreme legal powers that could be given to corporations to kill public interest laws. We talked about the power of lobbyists when it comes to negotiating trade deals in the last episode, episode 3. In the case of the EU and USA negotiations, that's been massive and visible, demonstrating the power and the money of big business. In just the last six months of 2018, the EU negotiators have had private meetings with around 50 major companies and commercial lobbying organisations, but only five consumer and environmental groups. What goes on behind those closed doors isn't published, but we do know that the pharmaceutical companies are challenging European rules on generic medicines, which would of course make medication more expensive. The US Chamber of Commerce has demanded deregulation of public services and the banning of state monopolies, such as health, replaced by what they call market access, and that's where the threat to the NHS comes from, and some dismantling, even, of the GDPR data protection legislation. The legal powers they're asking for would allow companies to take quite secretive action against governments that they think are obstructing them from making profits, something that's been called the Investor State Disputes Settlement Mechanism, ISDS. Most commentators seem to agree that doing a deal with the US, though, would result in reduced prices that would save UK families 
as much as £500 a year each. But, as you can see, at a cost elsewhere. Other countries don't have the same power as the USA, of course, but the things they're asking for give a flavour of the type of demands that come in every trade agreement or its negotiation. I hope that you found this episode and the whole of this series both informative and thought-provoking. I've tried to cover all the major aspects, but inevitably must have omitted some things. I'm sorry. I've tried also to be objective and unbiased, but that's not easy. To grow an economy and create wealth for citizens and residents, every country needs to trade internationally. And without doubt, free trade agreements help expand that trade. Opening up markets means liberalising and removing some of the restrictions and protections that most people don't even realise they have. As we see, free trade agreements are not just a key to increasing exports and imports. They can bring deeper change too. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and this podcast. I really welcome your comments and also suggestions for future conversations. We post new content every week, so please do click on the subscribe button and follow this, the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. You can also find the transcript, other articles and detailed resources relating to this episode on our website, growinternational.org. There, you can also join as a member for future updates and find all our other articles, videos and podcasts and benefit from other features, including free consultations and independent online advice. Again, that's www.growinternational.org. Until next time, this is Oliver Dowson wishing you success and reminding you that international expansion may be easier than you may think. Mm-hmm.